Amen. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, you are the uncreated one. You are the ancient of days. You have no beginning. You have no end. You hold all things together. Lord, you sit upon your throne completely sovereign over all things. Though kingdoms rise and kingdoms fall, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And so, Lord, we approach your throne this morning with confidence and with boldness, believing that you hear the prayers of your people, believing that you have a plan and a purpose for all that you do, believing that you work all things together for our good and ultimately for your glory. Father, this morning we are intimately aware of the brokenness of this fallen world. As many of us attended a funeral yesterday, we were reminded of the mortality of man, of the devastating effects that sin has brought into your creation by bringing death into this world. But Father, we were also reminded of the hope of the gospel, that though this world is broken, that you are making all things new, that though this body dies, that if we are in Christ, it will one day rise again, a glorified, resurrected, incorruptible body, no longer susceptible to sin or to sickness or to death. We are reminded that if we are in Christ, that to be absent from the body is to be present with you, our Lord and God. So Father, we lift up the Dockery family to you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would fill them with gospel hope, Lord, give them an overwhelming sense of your presence. Give them peace and joy in their broken hearts. And Lord, we thank you for their steadfast faith through all of this. Lord, we thank you for a pastor who, when walking through extreme difficulty, doesn't succumb to hopelessness or despair, but remains steadfast, trusting in your sovereignty and in your goodness. Lord, we ask that you would grant faith like that to each of us, an unshakable faith and confidence that you are good and all that you do is good. That you have not abdicated your throne, that you have not forgotten us, but that you are the Lord over all things and that you're working all things, all things, according to the counsel of your perfect will, to the praise of your glorious grace. So Lord, we lift up the Afghan people to you right now. Lord, we pray especially for our brothers and sisters in the faith who are facing extreme persecution. Lord, we pray that you would grant them that same unshakable faith in your goodness and in your sovereignty. Father, we pray that you would keep them safe. But even more than that, we pray that they would remain faithful, that you would answer their prayer and bring revival to their land through this hostile takeover from an enemy who hates you and hates your people. And Father, right now, in the name of Jesus, by faith, we pray that you would bring Taliban fighters to faith in Jesus Christ. But we believe you can do it. You have the power to bring the spiritually dead to life, to make your enemies your children, to take men who are killing Christians, thinking they are following the will of their God, and radically transform them. Lord, may these Taliban fighters have a Damascus Road experience where you show them the severity of their sin, you show them their need for a Savior and allow them to hear and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ that offers forgiveness and new life to all who repent of their sins and believe in Christ alone for salvation. Father, there's so much more going on in this world right now. 
and you know every single detail. And so, Lord, we pray for those in Haiti whose homes and livelihoods have been destroyed by an earthquake and a tropical storm. We pray for those in our body who are facing health issues or who have lost loved ones. Lord, we pray for our sister churches in the area and across the world that your gospel would be proclaimed today and your kingdom advanced. Lord, we pray for the missionaries that we support. We pray for the work that you are doing here, that your gospel would go forth and that people would be brought into your kingdom. In all of this, God, we say with the psalmist, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, now and forevermore. It's in the mighty name of Jesus that we ask all of these things. Amen. Glory to God alone. Glory to God alone. That's the title of this morning's sermon and the theme of today's text. And when I found out I'd be preaching earlier this week, I didn't know what I would be preaching on. Uh, Thankfully, Jerry is preaching a sermon series through the Psalms, but he only is preaching 12 of them, so that leaves a lot to choose from, right? And so as I continue to pray about it, the Lord kept bringing Psalm 115 to mind. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. And we've been focusing on the glory of God all year long. We've also had an extremely difficult year. Psalm 15 was written during a time of great trial for the people of God. We don't know exactly when, but it was probably written while enemies seemed to be prevailing over Israel. Either while idolatrous nations were attacking Israel, invading Israel and winning, or while Israel was in captivity, in exile, under an idolatrous nation. But this psalm, as we've heard, is not a psalm of lament. It's not a psalm of despair. It's not a psalm of hopelessness, but it's a psalm that expresses the strong confidence and the sovereignty and the goodness and the covenant faithfulness of God who will receive all glory. The psalm preceding it, Psalm 114, is about the God who has all might, who delivered Israel from Egypt across the Red Sea and across the Jordan, and who can make water come from a rock and before whom the whole earth trembles. And Psalm 114 and 115 are meant to go together. And so they're one song that would be sung at Passover every year, reminding people of the power of God and the strength of God and the might of God and the sovereignty of God and his steadfast love and faithfulness toward his people. So as the people of God sung this hymn, they were expressing their trust in God alone, that they would only give him their worship They would not give their glory to another. They would not take their glory for themselves, but they would give all glory to God that was due his name. Glory to God alone. That's the theme of this psalm, and and really it's the theme of the whole Bible, as we've seen this year. God alone receives glory. Now, this is such an important doctrine that it is the fifth and final sola of the five solas of the Reformation. The five solas were what distinguished the reformers from the Roman Catholic Church. And we're Protestants, and so we follow in the stream of the Reformation. And sola is just the Latin word for alone. So there's five solas. The first one is sola scriptura, scripture alone. That's the belief that because scripture is God's inspired word, that it's the only inerrant, sufficient, and final authority for the church. The second is solus Christus, Christ alone. This is the belief that Christ alone is the basis by which we are justified before God. Then comes sola fide, faith alone, 
And that teaches that the believer receives the redemption that Christ has accomplished only by faith, not through works. And fourth is sola gratia, grace alone. It says that all of our salvation from start to finish is by grace and grace alone. And because of all of these things, the reformers held fast to the phrase soli deo gloria. Soli deo gloria, that only God receives glory for salvation. Glory to God alone. God alone is to receive glory. We don't get any glory for our salvation. We don't get any glory for anything. We don't deserve any glory. But if we're honest, our flesh wants glory. We too often think that we deserve some glory. So that's why this psalm opens the way it does. Not to us. Not to us. In Hebrew, repetition is important. That's, that's how the author is emphasizing something. Not to us. We may want it. Our sinful flesh may crave it, but it's a fight each and every day to say, not to us, not to us, but to your name, O God, be the glory. And that fight's difficult, and that fight is lifelong. Because, honestly, we want our name to be known. We want our name to be remembered. And if you're successful at something, that fight becomes even more difficult. Your pride starts to take over and and likes the feeling of getting some glory, getting some praise. And so we have to stay diligent in this fight. To not take any glory for ourselves, but to give all glory to the only true God, who is the only one worthy of glory. Some of you may know that one of the most successful, if not the most successful, composers in history, Johann Sebastian Bach, used to write SDG at the bottom of all of his compositions. SDG, Soli Deo Gloria. He wanted God to receive the glory for his work, not him. I mentioned at a, at a sermon at the beginning of the summer how this psalm affected the life of a missionary named Adoniram Judson. I want to read you that account. So this is from To the Golden Shore, which is a biography of the life of Adoniram Judson. I would encourage every single one of you to pick up that book. It's kind of a lengthy account, but it's written like a story, and so it's pretty easy to follow along. Setting up the story, Adoniram was the son of a pastor, and from early childhood, Adoniram showed great intellectual abilities. He learned to read by the age of three and surprised his father one time when his father came home. He read a chapter of the Bible to his father at three years old. That's pretty impressive. And so his father always told him, son, you're destined for greatness. And so right here, we're picking up in the story where Adoniram is about 14 years old. They had moved to Plymouth, Massachusetts from a major port town. And with this move, Adoniram gave up on his ambition to become a navigator and a sea captain. And so listen to these words from his biography. His destiny now, Adoniram felt, was to become an orator, a poet, or a statesman. Another John Adams, perhaps. But something connected with books and learning. Something involving moving people's minds and hearts rather than grubby trade. Something that would win him praise and fame and make his name ring down the ages. Then, with the family scarcely settled in Plymouth, he fell ill. Critically, nearly fatally ill. For a long time, it was a question whether he would live or die. When it became clear that he would live, he had ahead of him more than a year of recovery. Lying in bed for months with nothing to do, he became introspective. He began to think of different things, peculiar things, strangely frightening things, thoughts that cast a new, lurid, ominous light on his ambitions. Suppose he became the most famous, 
most idolized man in the country. What difference could that make to him when he was dead? He had read about the great men of the past, Caesar, Virgil, Cicero, Demosthenes. Their names were known, they were praised, but they did not know it, for they were only dust. Slowly, another thought came to him as he lay under the expansive counterpane. It was not new, but it came to him in a new way, with a new force. There were two worlds, two lives for each person. This one, brief, narrow, finite, and the hereafter, eternal, limitless, infinite. Fame, to mean anything, should go with one into the next world, where one could enjoy it perpetually. But that fame, he thought, came only from goodness, holiness, religion. He began to modify his ambitions. Perhaps, he mused, he would like to become a famous minister in charge of a wealthy city church, a great Boston church, for example, where he could expound his sermons to a thousand or more fashionably dressed gentlemen and ladies who would hang on every word as he stood in the pulpit above them. He would have praise and fame, and not only in this world. As he toyed with this pleasing prospect, half smiling, he imagined the sea of admiring faces staring up at him from the crowded pews he began to be aware of a feeling of uneasiness. Without realizing how it happened, he found himself comparing this minister with an obscure country pastor, humbly striving only to bring his congregation and himself to God without any thought of self. The minister in whose place he had imagined himself was really no better than any other ambitious man, anxious only for fame. What would the judgment be on him in the next world? If he achieved heaven, he would certainly not achieve fame in heaven. It would be the obscure country pastor whose fame would ring out there through eternity, even though he were never heard of here. The world was wrong about its heroes. The world was wrong in its judgments. The fame of the unknown country pastor was really the greater, so much greater that any worldly accomplishment shrank into insignificance. This was the only fame that triumphed over the grave. Suddenly, Through his mind, words rang out so powerfully that he all but heard them spoken. Not unto us, not unto us, but to thy name be the glory. And with the words, such a dreadful shock of realization that he almost sat bolt upright in bed. Now these words that came to him from Psalm 115 stuck with Adoniram for the rest of his life. Adonai would become the first American missionary and he would go to Burma to spend his life preaching the gospel there. The dangers and the trials of the missionary life would take two of Judson's wives and seven of his 13 children. He poured out his life for the glory of God alone. And so we don't remember him to give him glory, give him fame, but to see a life that was lived for the glory of God. And I want our prayer to be the same as Adoniram's the same as this psalmist, the same as the people of Israel every Passover. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Because God deserves all glory. God created all things for his own glory. God created you for his own glory. God shows steadfast love and faithfulness to us Why? For his own glory. All that God does is for his own glory. And this concept can be really, really hard to wrap our minds around for a couple reasons. One, like we've said, in our sinfulness, 
we want the glory. We like receiving glory and praise. But second, because we also recognize that it's wrong for people to seek to glorify themselves in all that they do, right? We don't like people like that, egomaniacs. So if it's wrong for people to seek to glorify themselves in all they do, shouldn't it be wrong for God to seek to glorify himself in all that he does? No. Why? Why is it wrong for a person to seek to glorify themselves in all they do? Because they don't deserve glory. They don't deserve glory, right? They don't deserve any of the glory. They are created being. All that they have was given to them. So why is it right for God to do all things for his own glory? Because he deserves it. God is infinitely glorious and loving and good and holy and perfect and beautiful and awesome and praiseworthy. He alone is worthy of glory. And so that's our first point this morning, what we've been talking about thus far. Yahweh alone deserves glory. Yahweh alone deserves glory. Yahweh is the personal name for God. And when you see in your Bibles the word Lord in all caps, that's, that's Yahweh in Hebrew. That's the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And the, na- and the name Yahweh means I am. So this name that God has given himself, I am, Yahweh, means that God never had a beginning, God never had an end. That God's uncreated and that God's eternal. That he is completely self-existent, unlike anything else. That he is completely independent and that everything else depends on him. That he and he alone is constant and unchanging. That he is the ultimate standard of good and true and beautiful. And whatever he does is good and true and beautiful. And it means that God alone deserves the glory. Listen to what God says in Isaiah 42.8. I am Yahweh. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. So Yahweh alone deserves glory. God will not share his glory with any created thing, especially of carved idols of false gods. And this idea really sets up the whole psalm. Remember, at the time of this psalm, the people of God are under attack or in captivity from an idolatrous nation. And this idolatrous nation is apparently mocking Israel and mocking their God. That leads to our next point. Yahweh alone is sovereign. Yahweh alone is sovereign. Let's pick up Psalm 115, verses 2 through 3. Why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Do you hear the mocking voice of the enemies of the people of God? Where is your God, O Israel? Why isn't your God protecting you? If your God is so great, then where is he? Has he abandoned you? And what is the answer of the people of God? Our God is in the heavens. Our God is exalted above all. Our God is still on his throne and he does all that he pleases. And this is a claim of the absolute sovereignty of God. He does all that he pleases. He does whatever he wants to. He has no restraints. He has all power and authority and there is no one greater than him. He is omnipotent. He has all power. We are not. We can only act according to our finite nature. We do not have, contrary to proper belief, all power and authority. I was reminded of that in a pretty funny way this past week. Uh, we just got a new to us playground and trampoline in our backyard, which is a whole another story unto itself. 
But we also got a lot of, of rain this week. And so uh, my three-year-old son Judah wanted to go outside and play on this new playground. But it was raining pretty hard and it had been raining like that all day long. So he couldn't. So Isaiah, my six-year-old son, and I were sitting at the table, and all of a sudden Judah walks back to the back door, and he opens the door and, and shouts out into the distance, Stop raining! He said it a couple times. Isaiah just looked at ourselves and, and chuckled. It was a good effort, but it didn't work. It didn't work. It kept raining. We don't have authority over the weather. We can't control this world and how it operates. But we know who does. God does. God has complete power and control over all things. And he's the only one with that sort of authority. And using rain as an example is a good one. Do you remember when God addresses Job at the end of the book of Job? Job is questioning God, and then God answers him back with questions, right? Where were you, O Job, when I laid the foundations of the earth? Listen to this, these questions, this series of questions from Job 38. Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain? And a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on land where there no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? So what's the obvious answer to those questions? Who did all that? God. God is the only one who can do all that. The false gods don't bring rain. God alone brings rain. Yahweh is the only one who can do these things. Not me, not you, not the false gods of the nations. Listen to Jeremiah 14, 22. Are there any among the false gods of the nations that can bring rain? Or can the heavens give showers? Are you not he, O Yahweh, our God? We set our hope on you, for you do all of these things. So this, this statement of faith, Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. This means that God has all power and authority. But it also means that God always acts in a way that pleases him. That God is never forced to do anything that he doesn't want to do. He does whatever he pleases and has pleasure in all that he does. God is the only one with absolute freedom of the will. His will is not bound in any way. He's never out of control. God is never forced into a corner where he has to act in a way that doesn't please him. No, he does all that he pleases. Ephesians 1.11 says, He works all things according to the counsel of his will, all to the praise of his glorious grace. Now this doctrine is called the providence of God, the providence of God. This means, as John Calvin put it, that all events are the result of God's appointment alone and that nothing happens by chance. And that God, by his eternal counsel, manages all things in such a manner that nothing can be done but by his will and appointment. The 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, the Statement of Faith, where we derive our Statement of Faith from, says this about the providence of God. God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds, directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things, from the greatest to the least, by his perfectly wise and holy providence, to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. 
His providence, listen to this, leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. And so the providence of God teaches that God directs all things in such a way that he receives all glory, that everything happens just the way that he plans for it to happen, just the way that he, wi- just the way that he wills it and decrees it to happen. So what is the decree of God? Again, from the 1689 London Baptist Confession. From all eternity, God decreed everything that occurs without reference to anything outside himself. He did this by the perfectly wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably. Yet God did this in such a way that he is neither the author of sin nor has any fellowship with any in their sin. This decree does not violate the will of the creature or take away the free working or contingency of second causes. On the contrary, these are established by God's decree. In this decree, God's wisdom is displayed in directing all things, and his power and faithfulness are demonstrated in accomplishing his decree. We unashamedly believe this. We unashamedly teach this, that God is absolutely sovereign over all things, that nothing Nothing happens apart from the will of God. And this idea is all over the Bible from start to finish, that God is in control, that he has a plan and a purpose, and that he is working all things together to fulfill that plan and purpose, which ultimately, as we've said, is to bring glory to himself. But this doctrine is denied and even despised by many today. Why? One of the most common reasons given is because bad stuff happens right? Bad stuff happens. And so are we saying that God makes bad stuff happen? We need to be clear here, as the 1689 Confession is clear. God is not the author of sin, nor does he have any fellowship with sin, nor does this take away man's responsibility for sin. God does not make anyone sin. Are we clear? But if we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, we must also believe, as Augustine said, that those events which appear to us as unreasonable not only occur simply by the permission of God, but also by his will and decree. Now, this is a very deep doctrine, and we could spend a lot of time talking about this. But the absolute sovereignty of God, it can be a hard teaching to swallow. But what other answer gives us hope in the midst of extreme suffering? How does this answer work? God is absent. God is not in control. God doesn't have enough power to stop your suffering. Or maybe God does have enough power, but he doesn't care enough about you to stop your suffering. God has nothing to do with your suffering. Now, these answers bring hopelessness and despair. We will believe what the Bible teaches, Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. When evil is done to us, we can say with Joseph to his brothers in Genesis chapter 50, as for you, brothers of mine who tried to kill me, who sold me into slavery, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. What you meant for evil, God meant, not just allowed, God meant for good. And so that's our answer when this lost world mocks us in the face of our suffering. The pagan nations say to Israel while they're defeating and downtrodden, where is your God? And the people of God say, our God is in the heavens and he does all that he pleases. 
Think of our Afghan brothers and sisters in the faith. While the Taliban takes over their country, while Afghan pastors are being sent letters that say, we know who you are, we know what you do, and we know where to find you, while missionaries in Afghanistan are being hunted down, while followers of Jesus are trying to hide and having to meet in secret, and if they are caught, they're given a choice, convert to Islam or be martyred. The Taliban are saying to Christians, where is your God? The Christian God can't save you. He's abandoned you. We are in control now. What can our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan say? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Think of our pastor, who after he stood up last Sunday right here at this pulpit and talked about how difficult this last year has been, how it's been the most difficult 18 months of his life, but he, he said this, he said these words, he still believed with all his heart that God is absolutely sovereign. He even said these words, there's not a stray molecule in the universe. Right when he finished that sermon, he got a call that there was nothing more the hospital could do for his dad and that he would die soon. This unbelieving world could say to Jerry, where is your God? How has he allowed all this to happen to you this year? He doesn't love you. He doesn't care about you. And Jerry can say with a rock-solid confidence, my God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Amen? That's our response when we face suffering. When you get that cancer diagnosis, when you lose a loved one, when something tragic happens that you can't explain, when the world says, where is your God? We say, say it with me, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. We have an unshakable faith in our sovereign God who always acts according to his own good pleasure for our good and for his glory. We have hope in the worst of circumstances that somehow, though we may not see it on this side of heaven, that God is up to something, that he has a plan and a purpose for all that he does. Now, let's be clear here. That does not make suffering easy. That does not take away the pain that is real. That doesn't give you answers, but it does give us perspective, and it gives us confidence in the one true and living God. Which brings us to our third point. Yahweh alone lives and gives life. Yahweh alone lives and gives life. Psalm 115, verses 4 through 8. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So the psalmist here turns the mocking of the idolatrous nations back on them. Starts to mock them in their false gods. Do you hear his description of their idols? Shows the absolute foolishness of idolatry. So men are fashioning idols out of silver and gold. These statues. Instead of God making man in his image, man is making a god in his own image. He gives them He gives these idols mouths and eyes and ears and noses and hands and feet. These idols can't speak or see or hear or smell or feel or walk because they're not real. They're serving a false God who is not alive. One of my favorite descriptions of idolatry in the Bible comes from Isaiah 44, verses 13 through 17. So listen to these words of Isaiah, and they're just dripping with sarcasm. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. 
He shapes it with a plane and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man, with the beauty of a man, to dwell in a house. He cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and begs bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied. Also, he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. This just reveals the absolute absurdity of idolatry. From the same materials, wood, he, he makes a fire and he bakes bread and, and roasts meat. And the other half, he makes a god and worships it. These gods are not alive. They do not answer them. In seminary, one of my favorite classes that I took was a world religion practicum course. So it was over spring break, and so every day we would go to these different religious centers to speak with different religious leaders about their religion. And one day we went into a Hindu temple. And Hinduism is a polytheistic religion. They believe in over 330 million gods. And they have idols for each of these gods, and each temple focuses on different gods. Well, they invited us to this temple to observe their worship service. And so we go in, and they've got these altars set up uh, with all of these different idols. And in front of these idols, they've placed plates of food, like real cooked, prepared food for these idols. So the, the service begins, and they all gather around these idols. And the very first thing they do is take these bells, and they ring these bells, and they make a whole lot of noise. And they go on, they continue with their idol worship, they do dances, and they do chants, and then after they're all done, they wrap up, and the priest invites us to come sit down with him and, and gives us a chance to ask questions. And so the very first thing we asked about was the bells. Like, what was going on with the bells there? I'm not lying. His answer was, we ring the bells, and we make a lot of noise to call for our God. Our God might be on a journey, or he might be asleep, and we have to wake him up. Does that sound familiar to you? So that's exactly what Elijah mocked the prophets of Baal for doing. 1 Kings 18, 26-29. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, Oh, Baal, answer us! But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar they had made, and at noon Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. So the prophets of Baal cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. The idols of the nations are false gods. They are not alive. They don't act. They don't move. They don't eat. Right? We asked the priest what they did with the food. And he said, oh, when we're done, we, we take it up and we throw it away. These idols can't do anything. They're false gods. But millions of people still to this day all across the world practice this sort of idol worship to false gods who don't respond, who don't hear them, who have no power, who have no authority, who have no life in them, who are unable to give life. Psalm says in verse 8 that those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. 
These idols are useless and lifeless, and those who worship them, what do they become? Useless and lifeless. They have mouths, but they speak no wisdom. They have eyes and ears, but they can see or hear no spiritual truth. They have hands and feet, but they can do no good. Idolatry brings death and meaninglessness. Let's be clear here. That's not just true for religions who bow down to physical idols. You can make anything an idol. This world offers many idols that's alluring to Christians. We can all think of some right now. There are the obvious temptations, right? Money, fame, sex, possessions. Most of us, if we grew up in church, we know to be careful with those, right? We've seen the effects. We know people who make those their idols, and they become like them. You become like that which you behold. So you make an idol out of money, what do you become? You become greedy. You make an idol out of fame, you become arrogant. You make an idol out of sex, you become an adulterer. You make an idol out of possessions, you become a materialist. But here's, here's the thing. Here's what, what I want you to hear. That word idolatry is really insidious is that even really good things can be made into idols. Really good things can be made into idols. Things that we're even commanded to love. John Calvin said that the human heart is an idol factory. That we can take anything, even good gifts from a good God, and turn them into idols. Now what is idolatry? Idolatry is just placing something above God or in the place of God. And the danger is we can do that and still look really pious. We can take good things and turn them into ultimate things. Now, as I was thinking through this, two things came to mind. I think we do this a a lot in our culture today. We do this a lot with church and family. Church and family. So is is it possible to make an idol out of the church or out of your family? I think it is. How do you make an idol out of church? You elevate extra biblical aspects of the church, things that God has not commanded or acquired of the church, and you turn them into ultimate essential things. I think we all do this. I think this is the natural state of mankind. We make idols. We have our little pet golden calf, right? Just the way we like it, just the way we've always done it. And we're okay if you mess with other people's pet golden calves, but don't you mess with mine, right? I don't want to be a part of a church that doesn't have blank or that doesn't do blank. Fill that in for yourself. If you fill that in with anything not commanded in Scripture, you have made an idol. God's been very clear in his word about what the essentials of a church are. The Reformers defined a true church as one who had the right preaching of the word and the right practice of the ordinances. We would say that in the corporate gathering in here, we must preach the word, pray the word, sing the word, pray the word, and see the word in the ordinances. We would say that a church must have qualified biblical leadership must have church membership, church discipline, must have a clear understanding of the gospel, must have a clear understanding of conversion and evangelism and discipleship, and they must teach what accords with sound doctrine. Those are the essentials. Now, the Bible gives some flexibility about how each church carries out some of these things from in form and in circumstance, but the essential elements are clear, and the substance of these elements must be biblical. And if you just take a survey and you look across time and you look across history and you look all around the world right now, you will see those essential elements present in true gospel churches. But the form or the style or the manner in which some of these aspects are carried out vary from culture to culture and from time to time and from place to place. Let me give you an an example of this. In 2016, a very influential pastor from my area made this statement. 
He said, when I hear adults say, well, I don't like a big church. I like about 200. I want to be able to know everybody. I say, you are so stinking selfish. You care nothing about the next generation. All you care about is you and your five friends. You don't care about your kids or anybody else's kids. If you don't go to a church large enough where you have enough middle schoolers and high schoolers to separate them so they can have small groups and grow up in the local church, you are a selfish adult. Get over it. Now, he's since apologized for this statement, which is good. He he recognized maybe a little over the top, so we're not going to bash him. But I still think it's insightful that this this came out during a sermon. He was preaching, and these words came out. What he was communicating at the time is that having a big church is essential. Having a big student ministry is essential. He took these things which are not at all commanded by Scripture, and he made them essential. And he said, if you disagree with me, you're selfish, and you don't care about your kids or anybody else's kids. What's he doing? He made a big church and a big student ministry an idol. Now, these statements rightly cause an uproar online, and a former pastor here, who you would all know, who was sent out from this church to be a missionary in a Muslim country, who worked with a very small church, with not a very big student ministry, a small church made up of persecuted brothers and sisters, many refugees who fled for their lives from other Muslim countries. He wrote an article in response to this statement, and then he submitted it to the Babylon Bee, who published it. So if you don't know, the Babylon Bee is a satire news site. And so as we read this, hear that same sort of mocking and that same sort of sarcasm that we heard from the psalmist and that we heard from Isaiah and that we heard from Elijah, which is an appropriate response to idolatry and foolishness. The article is titled, Unsatisfied Persecuted Church Member to Try Out Another Church Just Across Minefield. Published June 8, 2016. Somewhere in Iraq, stating that he just doesn't feel like he's being fed by the persecuted underground church he's been attending for the past three years. Local man Salim Haddad reported Wednesday that he's planning on trying out a competing church just 30 miles across a deadly patch of open desert that is covered with live explosives. Pastor Malik is a great guy and everything, but I don't know. The youth program is just okay, and the refreshments are lacking. And Pastor's a pretty good teacher, but he just doesn't make the living word of God really come alive, you know? Haddad told reporters through an encoded message for fear of giving away the location of the church, which could result in the further persecution or martyrdom of his brothers and sisters in Christ. I heard about another Christian church, about eight hours from here by foot, on the other side of the passage of certain death, he added. I think the family and I are going to check it out. Haddad described his family's wish list for a church as including topical, relevant preaching, contemporary music, feeling like they can really get connected in a casual, laid-back atmosphere that's warm and inviting, despite having to sneak into the building at night for fear of capture and slaughter by Muslim authorities. We love Pastor Malik, and we wish, we wish him all the best, but I feel like it's God's will for us to go church shopping, Haddad said as he and his family began preparations for their dangerous journey across the mine-laden desert. We really hope this new church has the vibe we're looking for. It puts things in perspective, doesn't it? The missionary who wrote this article was recently labeled a terrorist by the government of their Muslim country. He was kicked out. He was given a permanent reentry ban. So this man saw others face, and he faced himself, real persecution. So I think a good litmus test for us, if, when we're asking the question, is this essential to a church, is does it pass the persecuted church test? Does it pass the persecuted church test? Would a persecuted church put their time and effort and energy to it? If not, it's probably not essential. So if you say, I can't go to a church that doesn't have this program or have that color carpet, 
or doesn't have this many people or doesn't use that instrument or sing this song or have that style of music, chances are you have made an idol out of your own preferences and opinions. And that will suck the life out of you, just like idols made out of wood and stone, because those things aren't worthy of your worship. Those things do not have life-giving power in and of themselves. And I want to be clear, we are all guilty of this to one extent or another. But when we do this, what it really means is that we've made an idol out of ourself. We want to serve ourself. We want the church to cater to our wants and our desires and our expectations. I heard a story of a, of a preacher one time uh, who after church, a member came up to him and said, I really just didn't get anything out of worship today. And the pastor's response was, that's okay. We weren't worshiping you. So we gather together to worship the one true and living God who has life and gives life. Not to us, not to us, but to his name be the glory. The other virtuous idol I think is so common is is family. Now let's be clear. We are commanded to love our family. We're commanded to love our spouse. We're commanded to love our children. We're commanded to sacrifice for our families and work to provide for our families and bless our families and nurture our families. But we are not commanded to worship our families. Our family must never take priority over God. Your relationship with your spouse should be your closest human relationship, but it should never replace your relationship with God. Your spouse can't handle that weight. They are not your savior. So if you place that weight on them, you will both end up disappointed. So husbands, love your wives. Wives, love your husbands. But love God more. The more that you love God, the more that you serve him together, the closer your relationship will be. Children are a gift from the Lord. But we must never place the gift over the giver. And this is so easy to do in our culture, our let our kids find themselves society, where the children rule the roost, where it's all about them and their success. Listen, parents, your children need to know that they are not the center of the universe. They need to know that. Yes, they need to know that you love them with an unconditional love, but they need to know that you love God more, that you will not base your life around them and their schedule that their activities will not take priority over God and the worship that is due his name. And parents, your kids will take their cue from you. They'll prioritize what you prioritize. And so if you prioritize them and only them, guess what they'll prioritize? Themselves. If you prioritize their sports and activities over everything else, guess what they'll prioritize? Their sports and activities. To show them with your life and the way that you raise them that your priority is the one true and living God that they are not your life, but that God is your life. That they are not your all, but that God is your all. And same as with your spouse. If you look to your kids for all of your joy and fulfillment, you will both end up disappointed. They were not meant to carry that weight. But God can. I shared with you earlier about Adoniram Judson and how he lost seven of his 13 children and two of his wives. His first wife, Anne, bore three children to Adoniram. All of them died. The first baby, Nameless, was born dead just as they sailed from India to Burma. Their second child, Roger Williams Judson, lived 17 months and died. I'm going to read you the words of Ann Judson after that. When her second child died, Ann Judson wrote, Our hearts were bound up with this child. 
We felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us of our only little all. Oh, may it not be in vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that he will stay his hand and say, it is enough. Then weeks later, she would write, when for a moment we realize what we once possess, the wound opens and bleeds afresh. Yet we would still say, thy will be done. What an incredible faith. I don't know if I could write those words. But Anne and Adoniram Judson had a rock-solid confidence that God is sovereign and that God is good. They believed that God alone had life and gave life. Nothing else, not even children. They had the unshakable faith in the sovereignty of God that we're talking about. Adoniram would go on to face trial after trial on the mission field. He would suffer for the gospel. He would suffer in prison. He would suffer being beaten. He would suffer being rejected. He would suffer preaching six years before his first convert. He would suffer burying two wives and seven children. He would later write, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. He believed it. He believed in the providence of God with certainty. While the Burmese stood around him, mocking him, worshiping their graven idols, their false gods, and they said to this Christian missionary, where is your God? What could Adoniram say by faith? My God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. He trusted God alone, which brings us to our next point, that we will trust Yahweh Alone. Back to Psalm 115, verses 9 through 11. O Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. So our next point is we will trust Yahweh alone. We will not put our trust in the false gods of the nations. We will not put our trust in ourselves. We will not, as we sang earlier, put our trust in riches or in wisdom or in strength. We will not put our, our trust in our possessions. We will not put our trust in politics. Amen? We're not even going to put our trust, ultimate trust, in our friends and our family. For all of these things are finite and frail. They are dust or will turn to dust, but we will trust the Lord. The sovereign, almighty, good, and gracious king of all creation. God alone is our help and our shield, and we are to trust him alone. Notice the repetition here, the same phrase over and over and over again. So the psalmist is, is repeating for, for emphasis. Israel, people of God, trust the Lord. House of Aaron, priests of God, trust the Lord. But what if I'm not, not a Jew? What if I'm not a priest? Oh, you who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is our help in time of trouble. He is our shield and defense. We can trust in him and only him. He is trustworthy. He is all powerful. He's all good and all that he does is good. Romans 8, 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? In the next section of Psalm 115, we see that Yahweh alone can bless us. That's our fifth point. Yahweh alone can bless us. Verses 12 through 15. The Lord has remembered us. He will bless us. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, both the small and the great. May the Lord give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed by the Lord who made heaven and earth. 
So the psalmist reminds people, the people of God, that God has not forgotten them. Yahweh has remembered us. Even though we have been disobedient, even though we have gone after other gods and practiced idolatry, even though we have forgotten the Lord, he has not forgotten us. He has remembered us, and he will bless us, not because of our obedience, but because of his steadfast love and covenant faithfulness. When we are unfaithful, God is always faithful. And why does he do it? Back to the beginning, for his own glory, for the sake of his steadfast love and faithfulness, for his own namesake. Right? If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that phrasing over and over again. For my own namesake, I do it. God's blessing to us is for his own glory. In his commentary on this passage, Plumer reminds us that in all our prayers for deliverance and victory, we ought to be careful that we do not ask God's blessings that we may consume them upon our lusts, but that his name may be glorified. And so we read this word blessing. When we think of blessing, we tend to think of of things that we like, right? Oh, I'm going to be blessed. I'm going to get some things that I like, things that feel good. So we might even, reading this passage, think of health and wealth and prosperity. That's not what the blessing of God usually looks like. And remember the, the context of this psalm, suffering. So this psalmist is saying, through suffering, there will be blessing. Through suffering, the Lord has not forgotten us. He will bless us. You remember what what Jerry, Pastor Jerry, said last week? He said he's found blessing in these 18 months of suffering and bitterness. That he's, during that time, he's known and experienced a sweetness of God on a deeper level. Through pain and through sorrow, he's seen blessing. Adoniram Judson's second wife was named Sarah. She and her first husband, George Boardman, were missionaries alongside Adoniram and Anne in Burma. And after Anne and his daughter died, Judson went into a deep depression. So far that he built a hut in a tiger-infested jungle, dug his own grave, and sat beside it for 40 days, contemplating death and, quote, hating his life in this world. In a letter during that time, he, he, uh, he wrote to someone and he said, God to me is the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. Thankfully, after a while, God would deliver him from this place of spiritual depression, and he would resume his missionary work. Sometime after that, Sarah Boardman would bury her husband, George, after already having buried several children. During that time, Adoniram wrote a letter to Sarah. Here's what he said. You are now drinking the bitter cup whose dregs I am somewhat acquainted with. And though for some time you have been aware of its reproach, I venture to say that it is far bitterer than you expected. It is common for persons in your situation to refuse all consolation, to cling to the dead, and to fear that they shall too soon forget the dear object of their affections. But don't be concerned. I can assure you that months and months of heart-rendering anguish are before you, whether you will it or not. Yet, take the bitter cup with both hands and sit down to your meal. You will soon learn a secret that there is sweetness at the bottom. That's the sort of blessing we receive from Yahweh. He's the only one who can bless us like that. The psalmist's final words are to exhort the people of God to praise the Lord. Let's pick up verse 16 through 18. The heavens are the Lord's heavens, but the earth he has given to the children of man. The dead do not praise the Lord, nor any who go down in silence. 
But we will bless the Lord from this time forth and forevermore praise the Lord. And so our final point is we will praise Yahweh alone. We will praise Yahweh alone. God made the heavens and sits enthroned upon them. God made mankind in his own image to reflect his glory, to be his image bearers, to spread his glory to the ends of the earth, to be fruitful and multiply. And so the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. But did mankind obey God? No. Adam and Eve, our first parents, sinned against God and because of their sin brought death into the world. They died spiritually and were separated from God and they would one day die physically. And because man sinned, death spread to all men. We are all in this room. We are naturally, spiritually dead. Ephesians 2, 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We were following Satan. We were following the course of this world. We were following the false gods of the people. We were spiritually deaf. We were spiritually blind. We were spiritually dead like those false gods. And the dead do not praise the Lord. Those who die in their sins cannot praise the Lord. We were hopeless on our own, but God made a way for us to be reconciled to him, a way for us to be forgiven of our sins and given new life, and he would do it for the sake of his steadfast love and faithfulness, and he would receive all the glory because salvation from start to finish is a work of the Lord. He would send Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, to become flesh, to live the life that we could not live, yet die the death that we deserve to die. And on the cross, God would place the sins of all who would ever believe on Jesus upon him, and justice would be satisfied on the cross. That all who would turn to Jesus, turn their eyes upon Jesus, repent of their sins, and believe in Christ alone for salvation may receive forgiveness and new life. Christ died, he was buried, but three days later he rose again from the dead, showing that he has victory over sin and death in the enemy. And his payment for sin was accepted. And he now calls us to repent and to believe, to come to me all who are, heavy, are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So I extend that same invitation to you now. You become like that which you behold. You become like that which you praise. And so turn your eyes upon Jesus. Give your life to Jesus each and every day. You can have a relationship with Yahweh, the creator and the king of the universe, the only one who deserves glory, the only one who is sovereign, the only one who lives and gives life, the only one who, can, who is trustworthy, the only one who can bless us, and the only one worthy of our praise, the one whom we will praise now and forevermore. Not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory. We say with John the Baptist, he must increase and I must decrease. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross that makes a way for us to be reconciled to you and have relationship with you. God, we put our trust in you and in you alone, for you are God and there is no other. You will not share your glory with another. So God, we ask that you would put to death in us any, any remnant of pride and sin that wants glory for ourselves. May each of us live lives that are glorifying to you and to you alone, each and every day, with every breath that we take. May we give glory to you. May we bring praise to your name and to your name alone. Until that day when we see you face to face and you will receive all glory and power and honor forever and ever. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together.